The decision by the Morrison government to enter the AUKUS agreement with the US and the UK, at the centre of which is Australia buying eight nuclear-powered submarines, has put the focus back on Australia's interest in becoming a nuclear power in some shape or form. Labour under Albanese has doubled down. Not only has it firmly committed to AUKUS and nuclear submarines, it has now agreed to host US B-52 bombers in the Northern Territory, which are capable of carrying nuclear bombs. That's why Solidarity has published a new pamphlet. It's called Atomic Ambitions, Australia's Flirtation with Nuclear from Maralinga to Nuclear Submarines. It's available from Solidarity branches or by emailing solidarity at solidarity.net.au. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm David Glanz, and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Narm, or Melbourne. The AUKUS deal and the decision to buy the nuclear-powered submarines isn't an aberration. Australia has a history of trying to go nuclear that dates back almost 80 years. That includes permitting above-ground nuclear testing in South Australia and on the Montebello Islands off the coast of Western Australia, building a nuclear power station at Lucas Heights, just 38 kilometres from Circular Quay in Sydney, and mining for uranium. Then there was a plan in 1969 to use nuclear bombs to blast a deep water harbour in the north of Western Australia, which would have made iron ore exports easier. The nuclear agenda underpinned the original Snowy Valley Hydro scheme and even the founding of the Australian National University. The first was needed to power planned nuclear facilities and the second, ANU, was built to be a nuclear facility with its core activity when it was founded in 1946 to be nuclear physics research. And all through this, successive Australian governments explored the possibility of owning or having access to nuclear weapons. So, for example, in 1958, Australian officials approached the British government about buying tactical nuclear weapons. And then in 1961, Australia proposed a secret agreement for the transfer of British nuclear weapons. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, commentators pointed to a so-called bomb lobby among government departments and visiting US officials reported that Australia was exploring getting nuclear weapons. I could go on, but I recommend you to read these details and more in the pamphlet. Instead, I want to focus here on three key questions that face us today in building an anti-AUKUS and anti-nuclear submarine campaign. The first question is whether Australia's collaboration with Britain and the US has been forced onto the Australian government. The classic left nationalist argument is that Australia joins wars in Iraq or Afghanistan, hosts US Marines and spy bases, and is now buying into the AUKUS project because we are puppets of the US. IPAN, the independent and peaceful Australia network, summed up the common sense in a recent media release. Warning of the threat of war, 
IPAN argued that, quotes, never before has the need been so urgent to stand on our own two feet and chart our own course in foreign policy independent of the United States. But looking back, we can see that the impetus for going nuclear has come time and time again from Australia's rulers. Here are just three examples. The US researcher Henry Albinsky wrote that as far back as the early 1960s, US officials were reporting that the Australian government was planning for the possibility that, to quote, to escape a world war, Britain and the US might someday decide that Australia was expendable, even in the face of Chinese atomic threat against Australia. In other words, the Australian ruling class was looking to defend itself rather than relying on its imperialist partners. Another example, the US Secretary of State Dean Rusk discussed the Non-Proliferation Treaty with Prime Minister John Gorton during a visit to Australia in April 1968. And Gorton, it's reported, had strong objections to the notion of giving up the nuclear option for a period as long as 25 years when Australia cannot know how the situation will develop in the area. And while Gorton claimed to support the treaty and the idea of non-proliferation, Rusk reported back in the United States that Gorton, quotes, sounded almost like French President Charles de Gaulle in saying that Australia could not rely upon the United States for nuclear weapons under the ANZUS Treaty in the event of nuclear blackmail or attack on Australia. Again, the plans for nuclear weapons in Australia were driven by the concerns of the Australian ruling class. And that's made very clear in the most recent example, where Peter Harcher has written in The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald about the origins of the AUKUS agreement. The proposal didn't come from the White House or Number 10 Downing Street. It came from Morrison and his advisers. And Harcher reports that when Joe Biden was first briefed on Australia's request for nuclear-powered submarines, he did not say yes. He was cautious, even sceptical. Australia dominates the southwest Pacific and islands to its north, but our rulers have always understood that their control depends on winning the backing of a greater imperialist power. In the earlier days, Britain and now the US. Convincing the US to let Australia into the very exclusive club of countries with nuclear-powered submarines is part of that approach. Australia is not a puppet, it's a regional bully and a sub-imperial power that wants to be armed to the teeth. The second question is the attitude of the Labour Party. Now, the Liberals, like John Gorton, for instance, and Scott Morrison more recently, have played their sordid part when in office. But given that we are faced with a militaristic Labour government today, I want to focus on the ALP's record, and it's not good. After the Second World War, the US was prepared to share its nuclear knowledge and research establishments with Britain and Canada. But it froze out other British Commonwealth nations such as Australia, which were regarded as untrustworthy. Labour Minister for External Affairs, Dr Herbert Veer Doc Evatt, known as Doc Evatt, lobbied hard for admission to the nuclear club. He criticised the US for not acknowledging Australia's record, quote, of active and sustained belligerency. 
like was to happen later in Korea, Vietnam, Iraq and Afghanistan and so on, the Australian ruling class was keen to turn its participation in the fighting into rewards and support from its allies. Having been knocked back by the US, Australia turned to Britain. Labour Prime Minister John Curtin had declared as early as the 14th of December 1943 that there would be a fourth British Empire and Australia was keen to play its role. Less than a month after the two horrific atomic attacks on Japan, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August 1945, Prime Minister Ben Chifley, who had succeeded Curtin shortly after his death a month earlier, asked Australia's representative in London to sound out Britain on involving Australia in nuclear development. And Doc Evert chipped in, writing directly to British Labour Prime Minister Clement Attlee, requesting that Australia be allowed to contribute to an empire scheme of atomic research and development. Now, despite his supposedly radical reputation, Gough Whitlam didn't bring a radically different approach as opposition leader in the late 60s and early 70s and in government from 1972 to 1975. He didn't, for instance, speak out against the plan to explode nuclear bombs on the coast of Western Australia. Instead, he just asked how long a feasibility study would take. In office, Whitlam supported a domestic nuclear power industry, the construction of enrichment facilities and an expansion of uranium exports. When the French were conducting above-ground nuclear tests in the Pacific in 1973, Whitlam told the US Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, that he was worried that French tests would give weight to a New Zealand plan to denuclearize the South Pacific, something he dismissed as a gimmick. In the mid-1980s, Foreign Affairs Minister Bill Hayden recommended that the Bob Hawke Labour government pursue an independent nuclear deterrent, and that's code for nuclear weapons. Hawke himself was faced with a militant anti-uranium movement that called for uranium to stay in the ground, and I'll talk more about that later. But in 1984, Hawke beat the left and pushed through the Three Mines policy, through the ALP conference, allowing mining and exporting to continue. And in 1991, Hawke tried it on again, thankfully unsuccessfully, and he tried to change Labour policy to allow for more uranium mines, quote, as the way of sending strong positive signals about the government's resolve to continue making tough decisions. Today, of course, Labour is fully committed not just to nuclear-powered submarines, but to the major military build-up initiated by former Liberal Defence Minister Peter Dutton, and that includes new ships, planes, hypersonic missiles and thousands more men and women in uniform. Why has Labour taken these rotten positions over and over again? The answer is straightforward. Labour is certainly no anti-capitalist party, even though its roots in the union movement and the influence of union officials make it different to the Liberals, the party of big business. Labour is committed to running Australian capitalism and the nation-state, and from that flows the need to defend that state and its borders. So spending more on the military and engaging the US deeper into the region as the guarantor of Australian regional power is just as important to Labour as to the Liberals. The third question is that of resistance. 
In the pamphlet, I sketch anti-nuclear resistance from the 1950s onwards. It's never stopped, and it's taken multiple forms, from peace marches in the cities to people travelling thousands of kilometres to protest outside spy bases like Pine Gap. But in the time I have left in this podcast, I want to focus on the high points of the anti-nuclear movement. And those have been when three important elements have come together. Mass direct action, mobilisation by First Nations communities and, perhaps most significantly, workers taking industrial action to achieve political outcomes. The movement against uranium mining in the 1970s was arguably the peak of the anti-nuclear movement so far, given the scale of working class action against the uranium industry action which disrupted the mining, transport and export of uranium on a far more serious level than at any other time. MOM, as the movement was known, started with petitions and protests, but the action quickly escalated. This was a time of widespread and militant union action, which fed into a wide variety of social causes, stopping the war in Vietnam, women's liberation and what was then known as gay liberation, and defending the environment. The movement organised direct action to disrupt uranium exports, and central to achieving this was the close cooperation between groups like MORM and rank-and-file unionists, who supported the movement by getting motions passed by multiple unions, boycotting any work that supported uranium exports. In May 1976, Jim Assenbrook, a railway worker in Townsville, was suspended from his job after refusing to load materials bound for the Mary Kathleen uranium mine in accordance with the policy of his union, the Australian Railways Union, and his suspension led to a national rail strike that ended in Assenbrook's reinstatement. Brisbane Wharfies coordinated for years with Friends of the Earth, warning them of incoming uranium shipments and how to best disrupt the ports from the inside. In Sydney, between the 20th and 23rd of June in 1977, protesters invaded the docks to disrupt the export of yellow cake, which was the name for uranium oxide ore, and they were supported by rank-and-file wharfies who stopped work in solidarity. Two weeks later, the movement had an even bigger win on the Melbourne waterfront. Melbourne members of the Waterside Workers' Federation, which is now part of the Maritime Union of Australia, black-banned a ship carrying yellow cake, the Columbus Australia, only to be overruled by their federal executive, which had a policy of fulfilling existing contracts. Hundreds of demonstrators then assembled on the waterfront, causing the ship's captain to raise the gangplank. That violated union safety rules and the wharfies stopped work. Finally, police attacked the demonstrators, arresting about 30 of them, but this move only provoked the wharfies to again ban the ship. Two days later, a mass meeting made the ban permanent and the Columbus Australia departed, leaving behind a cargo worth more than $1 million, worth a lot nearly 50 years ago. This kind of widespread solidarity even forced the Labour Party at its 1977 national conference to back a moratorium on new uranium mines, with the ACTU Congress introducing a similar motion two months later. Now, I don't have time to go through all the resistance, but honourable mentions need to go to the campaign 
to stop the Jabaluku uranium mine in the Northern Territory, where the traditional owners fought a fierce campaign backed by protesters who travelled from across the country. In Melbourne and Sydney there were marches and pickets, and here in Melbourne we blockaded the offices of North Limited, the company which hoped to open the mine. The Jabaluka mine never took place. And hats off to the traditional owners in Mukati in South Australia, who fought successfully against a proposed nuclear waste dump, backed by protesters and unions, including Labour Party, MPs and members. The campaign was so successful that the ACTU placed a ban on work on the proposed dump. There's so much more to say, but read the pamphlet for the details I don't have time to mention here. So what are the conclusions from this? First, the Australian ruling class is prepared to take us to the brink of nuclear war if that's what it takes to defend their power and profits. Australia is not dancing to the American tune. It has its own martial music to play. Secondly, Labour is committed to the nation-state and is therefore committed to its military. An anti-nuclear campaign will certainly have supporters among ALP members and branches. But to get Labour to pull out of the AUKUS agreement and cancel the nuclear submarines will take an enormous struggle to bend Labour to our will. And lastly, we can take inspiration from the struggles that have gone before, that have halted or slowed the nuclear agenda. Those struggles have been most successful when they have brought together broad organising with mass direct action, when First Nations people have stood up and fought back, and most importantly, when workers have the confidence and the political commitment to use their latent power, their industrial muscle, to stop the nuclear monsters. So let's go out and build the campaign against AUKUS and the nuclear-powered submarines, and we can learn from those in whose footsteps we follow. Mm-hmm.